0: The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and for this episode, I thought we would look, as we often do, at something that seems very straightforward on the surface, but actually presents us with all kinds of interesting details if we look up close. It's kind of like the organelles in a cell or something like that. And what I want to do today is questions, just questions. It's something that you think was pretty straightforward in languages. It's even been said that what language is fundamentally, if you boil it down, what its three main functions are, is statements, the book is read, commands, give me a book, and questions. Has anybody written a book about that? So statements, commands, and questions kind of carries the very basic fundamental functions of language. But you know, there's a lot more to it than that. Questions present all sorts of challenges. There are all sorts of things that you would never know about them, given that we don't have much time to pay attention to them. Questions are not simply something like asking, you know, what is the capital of Kansas? As Sarah Doan and her brother Barry would be able to tell us. It's not just that. There's a lot more to questions. Questions are cool. In English, our question words have a way of moving around in ways that they really don't have to. What we think of as just the way any language should be is really just one of many choices that a language might make. And so, for example, let's try... What do you want? Ordinary question like that. What do you want? Now, it seems so natural to us to have the what up front. We're thinking about the whatness. What do you want? So you're going to start with that. But try this. I kicked the ball. The ball is the object. And so I kicked the ball. Where's the natural place for ball to go? Because it's an object, it's going to go after the verb. What'd you kick? I kicked the ball. But notice... Suppose we're talking about this what business. What did you kick? Well, what you're talking about is kicking what? What object did you kick? What did you kick? So why isn't it you kicked what? Isn't that what it should be? Because what is the object. It's not certain, but it's the object. You kicked what? But no, we don't do it that way. Notice that we kind of can. So we can say you kicked what? Or you want what? Or um, remember the, the Wayne's World routine from about 1856, where they would do the, a sphincter says what? I'd have to say, a sphincter says what? What? A sphincter says what? What? Exactly. So normally we would say, what does a sphincter say? but you can say you can be understood saying a sphincter says what and it sets up that juvenile little joke and the truth is that many languages do it the quote unquote right way we think it's so normal to say you know what did you eat but if we were doing say mandarin chinese it's not what did you eat it's you ate what so you ni and then ate chula chula you ate ni chula and then what? It's not Shenma. Shenma is what? It's not Shenma Nichula. That sounds like a Martian Chinese person. It's Nichula Shenma. Nichula Shenma. You ate what? And that doesn't mean in Mandarin you ate what, motherfucker. It's not that. It's just, you know, what did you eat? And the what goes where it belongs. There are many languages that do it that way. It's just that in English, we have this tradition of you know taking that what and putting it at the front of the sentence. And it feels perfectly normal, but that's actually a quirk. If you are a Chinese person, that seems odd at first because we're not putting what in the place it belongs and in a way they're right. Because if you say, I kicked the ball, you should also say, I kicked the what. Languages are charmingly senseless. And then even more about how do you make a question in English? It may seem so straightforward. We think the irregular stuff is things like think and thought. But how about instead of saying you want what, we say what? Now notice that it could just be that we put it at the front. And so you want what? Instead we say what you want. Notice that we don't say that. Unless we're Aretha Franklin. But we don't say what you want as we walk through life. And that's, of course, not what Aretha Franklin means in that lyric. Or why don't we say the way a normal Germanic language does what want you? You know, Was willst du? what want you? That would be normal. But no, English is a very odd tongue. In many ways, it's what do you want? What do you want? And that do is one of the oddest things in the whole world. That business of having absolutely to use do when you make a question or when you make something negative and so I do not want something. That is this odd thing about English and really the only other languages on earth to my knowledge after about 15 years of having any reason to think about this that use do in just that way are Celtic languages of Great Britain. And so it's Welsh, it's Cornish, you can take it down into France with Breton, which is their close relative, but it's only them. And so it seems that what happened is that Germanic went to that windy island, and people who had that weird way of using do came up with their own English in which you said things like, what do you want? And now here I am, and I'm saying, what do you want today? And it feels as natural as tripping over my feet but if you look at just about any other language if you're not you know on that island it's not the way things are done do and it's the funniest thing among the um the establishment the people who are you know smarter than me they will say that no it's not celtic that that hasn't been established that you know maybe it was just an influence and you know what they mean by that is that it didn't really matter and that we might as well write about these things the same way people wrote about them 50 years ago and one of their objections is something that does make sense in itself which is that in other germanic languages over on the continent there are things kind of like the way we use do and so for example let's go to bavaria I'm going to cut the bag open. One way you can say that in Bavarian is not just to say cut open, but to stick a seemingly meaningless do in there. So you can say, maybe I'll cut the bag open. The way you might put it is, I do maybe the bag cut open. I forget how Bavarian sounds. I haven't been in a while, so I'm just making this up. But, I do maybe the bag cut open. I do maybe the bag cut open feel like I'm imitating asterisk speaking Bavarian because of these books I have. I don't know. Anyway, that's how you might say it in Bavarian. So I do maybe the bag cut open. All right. You can say I do maybe the bag cut open, but that's not the same as saying I will cut the bag open. It has a different meaning. And so, if you say, I do maybe the bag cut open, what you mean in Bavarian is something kind of like, maybe, maybe I'll just cut the bag open, so just, just wait, let's forget about all of this mishigas that we're dealing with, and maybe we just need to cut this bag open and let the explosion happen. Maybe I'll just <laughs> That's what the do means, the toa, in this case. Whereas in English, if you say, what do you want, you don't mean, what exactly do you do? it doesn't mean that, it just means, what do you want? You can't say what want you in some other situation. And so, in the other Germanic languages, there is a do that you can jam in now and then, but it has a meaning, and it's not obligatory, and it's considered kind of colloquial. Only in English do you have to use it. And that's a that's a Celtic matter many of us are convinced of because we're, we're just correct. In any case, you have this what business, and you know, it gets into some of the wildest, most esoteric stuff with our Generative syntacticians. We're going to delve more into that whole realm of things in a future show. But they're people who believe that we are genetically specified in some way to have things like the what word moving to the front and having certain results. It's a very interesting thing. So, for example, you could say, who do you want to win? Now, who do you want to win can mean two things. It can mean which candidate do you want to have the experience of winning, okay? But then you can say, who do you want to win? And it could mean, less likely, but it could mean, who do you wish to win in, say, some contest, like a kissing contest at some, some fair? Did that ever really happen? I hope so. In any case, who do you want to win? So that's, you want to win who? those two things. Now, if you say, who do you want to win the contest? What you're saying is, you want who to win. If you say, who do you want to win for the kissing contest? You're saying, you want to win who? Now, this is the way a syntactician might think that we produce this sentence in our heads. This all happens very quickly, and we're not thinking of it. So if you say, who do you want to win in the contest? It starts as, on some level in your brain, you want to win who? So that's what you first kind of pop out. Then your brain goes over it and prepares it to be said in a natural colloquial way. So you have want and to, but you really want to say wanna. That's how you're going to do it. So you want to win who? Then it becomes you want to win who? And then the who gets moved to the front. Who do you want to win? But then suppose it's the other one. You're talking about a candidate Which candidate do you want to win? Who do you want to win? Well, that would start as, you want who to win. So that's how it starts. Now then you get this pass where you're trying to make it sound colloquial. You make it sound natural. But this time, it's, you want who to win. So you can't make want to wanna, because that who is sitting in between. So there is no wanna. Then you move the who to the front. So who do you want to win? So the generative syntactician, this is how Chomsky gets his start as grandfather of modern linguistics, says that there's a reason why if I say, who do you want to win, you're more likely to imagine that that's me talking about the kissing contest. Who do you want to win? Who do you want to take over off to the side of the fair and and give a kiss? Who do you want to win is less likely if you're saying, do you want this person or that person to win the contest? So the idea is that there are these different levels going on in our brains and how we generate sentences. Some people think this is complete nonsense. Some people believe it like the Talmud. And then there are a lot of people who are in between. It's a fascinating subject. And, you know, it's been shown that actually people do say, who do you want to win? Where what they mean is, which candidate do you want to win? A lot of what the Chomskins were saying about this 50 years ago was based on what we call introspection. They're just using their own sense of how the language goes. And, you know, you have to start somewhere. So these things are complicated, but they are, unlike the Celtic hypothesis about English origins, they are unresolved. It's a fascinating subject, and we're going to delve more into it. Anyway, it's time for a song. And you know what we're going to do today? We're just going to do David Yazbek. He is one of my favorite Broadway composers. Not only is he great musically, but lyrically he is the equivalent of Lorenz Hart. He does not quite get enough credit for this because Broadway is too marginal to the modern consciousness these days, but... He's really good. This is a song that I don't know if anybody cares that much about from his wonderful Dirty Rotten Scoundrels of the late aughts. This is Sherry Renee Scott singing Here I Am. It's the rhymes. She's a rather naive or pretending to be naive girl who finds herself in Paris, and she's very excited. And so this is this ingenuous person happy to be in France for the first time. I
1: mean, the air is French. That chair is French. This nice and French, the skies are French, the pies are French, those guys are French, these fries are French! Pardon me if I fly off the handle, no place else on earth can hold that candle. So benny, bd, folks, let's face it, juice we cc folks, excuse me if I spout, I'm letting
0: only about these words that tend to begin in English with wh and get moved all around. In a lot of languages, there's more stuff that you need to do when you make things questions. English, in some ways, is kind of boring as these things go, or English gives you these weird syntactic complications, but with other languages, you have just this extra material that you have to put in of a whole Different kind. So, for example, let's do one of my favorite languages as always that I've been giving short shrift for the past year or two, and I'm not sure why, which is wonderful Russian. If you wanted to say something like, Are you thinking about me? Okay, so you are thinking. So, you are thinking about me. You can think of that as about me. You could say, are you thinking about me? Okay, that's that's fine. But really, just as often, they put in this little particle. It's this little little bit of stuff. To me, everything has a taste. This little particle tastes like pineapple. It's li. Little pineapple li. So, are you thinking about me? dumayash you thinking about me? But really, So you have to stick in that little li. Esperanto, the The artificial language extraordinaire grabbed onto that. Ludwig Zamenhof created it, and he spoke Russian and Polish, and so having those little interrogative particles felt very natural to him. The apple is on the table. La pomo esta sur la tablo. You know what I like about Esperanto? There's no Esperanto accent, because it's supposed to be for everybody. And so I can pronounce it the way I want to. So no, la pomo esta sur... No, I can speak it in English. The apple is on the table. La pomo esta sur la tablo. If I want to ask if the apple is on the table, then I say chu. Chu la pomo esta sur la tablo, huh? That's fun to speak a language without having to speak it. So, chu la pomo esta sur la tablo, and that is, is the apple on the table. Now, on the one hand, If you're trying to learn a language, if you think of languages as these pets to be tamed, which actually makes no sense, but I kind of do, with that interrogative particle, you think, damn it, can't you leave something to context sometimes? But then on the other hand, you can think of it as more explicit. It makes a language clearer. English could maybe use more things like that. And many languages take it much further. It's a fun thing about languages, especially the further you get from boring Western European, including English. The Saramakan language I've often talked about. It's a Creole language, and it's spoken in the rainforest of Suriname by descendants of slaves who were lucky enough to get away from the plantations on the coast. They made their lives in the rainforest. They've been living there now for centuries. And the Creole combines English and Portuguese, Dutch later and two West African languages in particular, Fongbei and Kikongo. So it's really just its own self. It's not a version of any other language. It's just a brand new language. And let's say you wanted to talk about vomiting, which is just what happens to come to mind. If you want to ask, do you wish to throw up? Do you wish to exhibit reverse peristalsis? Do you want to throw up? So you've been to a party and you're holding somebody's head over the toilet. Do you want to throw up? You say, Ikebalakio? And so that's you want, throw up, and then all oh, is the way you make something a question. That's Sarah Lee. So, Ikebalakio, Ikebalakio, the all oh, is not some expressive random thing like in a Motown song. It's a piece of grammar. Ikebalakio. But then suppose you wanted to say, Here's a a situation. Somebody doesn't want to admit that they've been drinking a whole lot at a party and they're pretending to be sober, but they're looking kind of green and their balance isn't right. And their cheeks seem to be full of something. And so, you don't want to break their cover, but you want to ask them, do you, would you like to throw up? The way you would say that is Ikebalaki no, Ikebalaki no. And no originally comes from a word that means no more. Now it's unrecognizable as that. And so it was originally, do you want to throw up no more? Like, that's all? No more than that? But now it's just no. So, no? So, "ikebalakio." Would you like to vomit? no, Wouldn't you like to go hurl, you know, discreetly? And so you can convey that kind of nuance. It's wonderful. But there are languages that take this much further. It's a fun thing. So, for example the Chinese languages, as we have learned to call them. Well, if you know somebody who speaks Taiwanese, or somebody's talking about speaking Fujianese, or they might call it Hokkien, all three of those are versions of a Chinese language that is neither Mandarin, nor Cantonese, nor is it any of the others, because it's itself, and the cover term for all of them is min, which you don't really hear much if you're not Chinese. And there are many kinds of min. Southern min is one variety, and I'm going to take this from the Huian Dialect of the southern kind of men. There is so much Chinese. It's like there's so much Arabic. There's so many different kinds. But Huayan, southern men. Annie, you know why I'm using this particular language, by the way. Interrogative particles in southern men really cover a whole range of humanity. I'm not going to try to pronounce way on Southern men because I can't hear it. And, you know, somehow my social life has missed giving me extensive contact with speakers of way on Southern men. So I'm just going to, I'm going to do it in English, except for the particles themselves. But if you ask somebody the boring question, and so, you know, are you about to get a text and ruin the recording or something like that? Just asking an information question that is, mm. so something like, are you a student? That's, are you a student? Hmm. That's that one. So that's like a nice lee or a nice aw from Saramakin. But then if you're trying to convey that you're a little bit surprised that something's a little bit counter-expectational, that there's a bit of drama. Like if you want to say, you want me to tell him? You want me to tell him? Then it's not, you want me to tell him? Mm? No, it's, you want me to tell him? Ah. You want me to tell him? Ah. So there's actually something that means that. And the thing is, if you ask a speaker, they're not going to tell you this. It won't come to their mind. And even if you point it out, they're not thinking about the subtle differences between these little particles. They'll say, well, it's just something that you say. It's just like us trying to describe where you use a and where you use the. Nevertheless, this stuff is grammar. If you're asking about something that's about to happen, something is coming up. Well, you have to use a different particle. So are they about to come? It's not. Are they about to come? mm -hmm and it's not are they about to come up it's are they about to come ba i'm not saying come b or something are they about to come ba and you have to put the ba on then if you're talking about where something is whether something exists then there's a whole different one so is there an outlet here is there is there a plug over here mm no that would make you a primitive speaker is there a plug here bo is there a plug here bo that's it. I won't say bo, because that's like I'm speaking Esperanto. Is there a plug here, bo? Beau? Bo's not a person. Bo is that interrogative particle that you use when you're talking about where something is. It's actually that fine-grained. And then, if it's about probability, so talk about it could happen here, as we talk about these days. Do you think it could actually happen here? Do you think it could actually happen here? Mm? No. Do you think that it could actually happen here, bo? No, no, no. no. Do you think that it could actually happen here? You have to do that. So you've got this whole list. In linguistics, we call them paradigms. No, we call them paradigms. These lists of grammatical items that have that kind of relationship. I used paradigm once in a class in college. I said, well, what about that other paradigm? And that teacher never liked me (laughs) after that. You have to be careful with these things. But, you know, Southern Min is one of these languages. It does not have... You know, amo, amas, amat, ablo, ablas, abla, and all that. It doesn't have those sorts of little endings. And so, it's easy to think, it doesn't have any grammar. But, no, actually, as languages go, min are some of the most complicated languages on earth. And this is an arbitrary judgment, but I think most linguists who were familiar with a range of languages would agree. Slavic is some of the most complicated languages on earth. Navajo and the gang, as I discussed on the Native American show, those are some of the most complicated. And as well, the languages that Navajo probably came from in Siberia, the only one living now is Ket. It's so complicated that I barely believe that anybody ever really spoke it. But then, besides, there's some languages of Papua, and the island of New Guinea that are so complicated that I think that the people describing them are making it up. I'll talk about those on a future show. But men, especially with a lot of things going on with the sounds, but also things going on in the grammar, one of the most complicated languages I have ever seen described. And yet there are people who have said and people who would say, it doesn't really have any grammar. No, it just has different grammar. More David Yazbek. We are on the full Monty. You may have seen the movie. There was a musical good musical that makes working class men singing sound very plausible. It's a very likable piece of work. At one point, the gronky old piano player sings a song about how badly Their preparation for this big number at the end where they get naked is going. And in the original Broadway production, this person was Kathleen Freeman, who is a character actress that those of you who are of a certain age and or then some, or as young as me, because I'm, of course, neither one of those... (laughs) Things, But if you were that age, you might remember her from the Jerry Lewis movies, from practically every television comedy that was on the air from about 1955 to about 1980. Kathleen Freeman, always one of my favorites. And in the full Monty, you actually got to hear her sing a song. This is the end of what's called Jeanette's Showbiz Number. Kathleen Freeman. And she's using profanity.
1: I played for hoofers who can't hoof. I played for tone deaf singers. And once when I insulted Frank. I played with broken fingers. I paid my dues, I know the blues. Of this I can assure you. So now I'll say it one last time, cause I don't wanna bore you. I've got some bad news for you. Things could be better. They really could be better.
2: I could be better. Let's face it, we suck. We're deep down in the ditch, man. This as a bitch man Things could be better We could be better
1: Things
0: could be better round.
1: You know what Kate Smith used to say about a bad rehearsal? Usually means a bad performance
0: Hey! What else about questions? Well, questions help us tell our story of how Everything in any language is always slowly on its way to becoming something else, such that anything in the language now has some interesting story about what it used to be. Questions themselves often become something else, and so it's easy to start with the idea that a language is statements, questions, and commands, but really that's an oversimplification because there's bleed between those three things in terms of what their form is, And what their function actually ends up being in terms of how we talk. And so, for example, you can have questions that really are commands. So if you say, could you tell me where the facilities are? Well, technically, you're asking a question. But if it were a question, then a person could answer, yes, I could tell you. And then walk away. When you ask a person, are you capable of telling me where the bathroom is? You are telling them in a very polite and proper way, tell me where the toilet is. You can't just give an answer. And so questions evolve into kinds of command. happens all the time, in some languages more than others, but it's a very normal thing. Using questions for that kind of thing is not the only way. A little sidebar. Malagasy, which is spoken on Madagascar, interesting for many reasons. One of which is that Malagasy is an Austronesian language, and its originators sailed from Borneo. So Malagasy is closely related to Malay and Tagalog. It's the funniest thing way over there across the Indian Ocean. But also, Malagasy has all sorts of politeness Features that are quite counterintuitive for us. And so, for example, if you want to tell somebody to wash the clothes with soap, well, you don't just say, Wash the clothes with soap, and you don't say, Could you wash the clothes with soap? To say, Are you capable of doing it, would sound rather Jupiterian to people speaking Malagasy. The way you do it there is you just state, The soap is to be used to wash clothes. And if you say that to somebody, then they know that you're saying, You Pick up the damn soap and wash the clothes. The soap is to be used to wash clothes. That's how they use their machinery. We Western Europeans, in particular, will say, Could you tell me where the facilities are? And we'll pretend that we're asking a question when really we're telling somebody to jump to it and tell us to where we can go seek some (laughs) relief. And so there's all sorts of bleed in this way, and it's not just with questions. And so, for example, a command can become a statement. So, suppose Suppose somebody says, bite me, I'm not sure what that exactly refers to, I can imagine, but bite me, if somebody says that, that is not a command, or especially given what I think it means, it would not be a very sensible command, it's a statement. When you say, bite me, you're being dismissive. What you mean is, I do not place the value on that that you do. Or you're saying, I hereby refuse to perform the action that you wish that I would. Bite me is a command, but really, it's a statement. Or questions of a different kind. Like, when you're talking to somebody and you're making statements, but everything you say sounds like a question in other words, very normal colloquial English these days among people under a certain age, and that age is quickly becoming roughly 55, that is informally called uptalk. And it's an example of where questions can also go. A question can be a command. A question can become a statement. Because when people are using uptalk that way, they're not actually asking questions. Nobody has that many questions. If you had that many questions, then you couldn't attend to this thing that we call living. When you hear people using that intonation, what it is, is a way of making a statement in a way that connotes that you're not being dogmatic. It's actually a very considerate kind of thing. And it's easy to think, because we are in our lives, that it has something to do with being probably North American and probably American sometime in the 80s when everything started smelling like bubblegum and marijuana and teenagers took over or something (laughs) Like that. But no, actually, the first documentation of that kind of uptalk is in 1950s Australia believe it or not. I don't have recordings of that. I've tried to get them and ran up against a very polite wall. If any of my Australian listeners have evidence of this or recordings, please send them my way and I will share them with listeners. But for now, you just have to take my word for it based on academic work. First in 1950s Australia, before anybody was doing it in the United States. Here, it really took off in the 80s. And it's been traced by somebody quite authoritatively to sorority girls. They certainly would have been early examples, and it would have originated among that cohort. I can definitely say that I remember it quite concretely in the year 1986 among white sorority girls at New York University. I worked in a copy center for a while, and there was a a contingent of them. They definitely had exactly that intonation to the point that I remember thinking about it consciously. And this was in the fall of 1986. But it really is quite prevalent at this point. And I want to give you an interesting comparison. I can't give you 1950s Australia, but I can give you this. The Quiz Kids. It's these shows where teenagers get to show how smart they are. Well, here is a 21st century edition of Quiz Kids. And listen to these guys just talking about their lives and listen to how they keep going up. And that's perfectly natural. Notice that they are, at least from what I can see, they're not women. This is now gender neutral. So listen to them when they talk about stuff and notice that that intonation is the mark of modernity these days.
2: Uh, so there's this program at my school called the John Near Research Grant. And uh, basically, it's an opportunity to really learn about uh, American history. So I'll be researching nuclear submarines uh, and how they affected U.S. diplomacy in You're the Cold War. You're doing traveling with that, too, aren't you? Yeah, so I might be going to Groton, Connecticut, and I'll definitely be going to the Reagan National Library.
0: Very good. Good luck with that. Funny thing, showing you that this is a novelty, that this is not older people complaining about something that's been around for a long time. The Quiz Kids has been running since 1785, and so you can dig up old radio recordings of Quiz Kids, although nowadays you don't have to dig anything up, you can just push a button. This is the Quiz Kids in 1946. And this is a precious example of listening to people speaking off the cuff before 10 minutes ago. So you get to actually listen to children just expressing themselves without reading from a script. It's 1580, and here they are. Listen to these very 1946-sounding kids and notice what they don't do.
1: Uh Well, sometimes uh my dog to scratch, you know, his head goes back. So all you can see is a headless body because his head is under his body scratching. So all you can see is a headless body. Shows so I know,
2: tangle. but uh, <laughs> uh, what would that, what would that do?
1: And in uh, so far as a tangle of string is concerned, I well, he's.
0: He's all around himself. His head is around the other way.
2: Oh, I see. He's a little tangled up. I see. Uh huh. Maureen, what were you going to say?
0: I was going to say that, uh,
1: String is using a ball and he could, uh, go in a ball and roll around, but that's more or less what Joel said.
0: Yes, that's right. And then, of course, if the ends became loose and, uh, Judy.
1: Well, if you had two dogs, uh, one could tangle with the other.
0: Isn't that neat? So questions have become statements in our time. It's one of those things that makes language a spectator sport. You get to watch it happen. In any case, speaking of Uptalk, what an utterly hopeless transition, so I guess I'll just leave it at that. We were just speaking of Uptalk. Now we're going to talk about something else, which is that COVID has changed, of course, everything. And one of those things is the state of various of your media organs. And that includes Slate. There is no danger, but you could really help us out at this point by subscribing to Slate Plus. What is Slate Plus? Well, my regular listeners, I know you're sick of listening to this, but I must, for our newer listeners, explain that it is a little tag that you get. After the regular episode, where you get some more information, it's like on an old sitcom where you have that little tag that kind of wraps things up. But when the show went into syndication, sometimes they'd leave out the tag so they could have commercials and it really didn't hurt anything. You get a tag. And you also don't have to listen to any ads during the show. And, of course, it's not just for my show. It's for all of Slate's podcasts. And it's for a nominal fee. Yeah, it is about a little bit of extra money. But you get more stuff. You don't have to listen to any ads. Ads, and you will help us get through this crisis along with everybody else. And so just try slate.com slash lexicon plus if you want to help us out by subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus gives you more. More David Yazbek. Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Yes, he came up with a musical based on that. Frankly, if you ask me, it didn't quite work, but it did have some interesting numbers, or I thought it had one really interesting number. This is called Model Behavior. This is Lara Bonanti. She's an airheaded yet intelligent and very charming model, and she's trying to call her best friend because she's having some problems. I can't play you the whole thing. You should look it up. It's absolutely hilarious. But this is a chunk of of model behavior. Lara Bonanti is a joy forever. Here she is.
1: Peppa, it's me again. Why aren't you picking up the phone? It's like my brain is gonna melt if I don't talk to you. I've got a problem in the shower and I've only got a minute. Cause the problem in the shower is this guy that I've been dating with, Malik. He's wasted the work Swarthy, like a desert chic. And he's been here in my apartment for about a week. I met him down at Cafe Sombra, and I know you think I'm overly romantic But you will not believe the connection we had Like, immediately I was ready for him to meet my mom Like, I could feel my heart exploding like some kind of bum Which is ironic, because actually, I think he literally has some kind of Anyway, Grandpa, happy birthday, say I love to Grandma and Be sure and think, oh, that was him I may be jumping to conclusions, God, I hope I am He thinks I'm thin and he's got shoulders like Jean-Claude Van Damme Listen, call me when you hear this, I'll be here for half an hour, call me back Are you okay or not there? But we need to talk My stomach's aching like I swallowed some enormous rock I'm at the phone booth on the corner And I've only got a minute Cause I'm running out of change Cause I've been lending all my money to Malik God knows with men I'm not exactly on a lucky streak But this one really is a mess I think I'm gonna freak I know you say I'm an alarmist But I'm not remembered There's that time I thought I saw a spider You said, man, nah, a raisin But it suddenly started moving And it crawled over and bit me on the toe So if you're gonna stand in judgment That's it's a good thing I didn't eat it, but I never would have eaten it Cause I never did like raisin, so why would there be a raisin on the floor? So when you hear this, call me back, I'll wait a little more I'll be at 773, damn, they scratched out the number And misspelled vagina Alright I'm hanging up, I'll call you back
0: Here's something else There are things about questions and languages that just get plain batshit weird So for example, what's this I hear in the background? Why suddenly am I in college not having sex?
2: me I'm a real life wire Psycho killer. Que
0: <laughs> Ah yes, it is talking heads. And so that qu'est-ce que say, you know it fits so well. That's really good lyric writing. I remember how sophisticated that also sounded at the time. still does. It's just good music. But what's Keska que say? You know, Keska que say Keska que say. Well, quest is classic schoolboy, schoolgirl French. It's standard French for what's that? quest But have you ever seen quest written? quest que You think, well, maybe it's just three bits. But written out, it's quest It's like 400 words. quest is, if you take it bit by bit, it's saying, what is that 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 is? Qu'est-ce que c'est? Que ce, eh? What is that 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 is? And now a French person doesn't even think about it. That's just the way you say what. But what has needed reinforcement. Words get tired. So what is it? And then what is it that it is becomes the way that you say what is it? Or instead of saying what's that, if you want to say what's that, like what is that, then it's qu'est-ce que c'est que, ce, que ça? And what's amazing about qu'est-ce que c'est que, ce, que ça is that that's French. And just 2,000 years ago it was Latin. And in Latin, just the s. So kes, eh, just the s. That was two words in Latin. It was ecum ilum. That meant here he is. Kind of like here I am. Well if it's here he is, then ecum ilum. And over time, ecum. Gen, 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 su, su, su. And so it becomes s. So kesu, 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 eh, ecum ilum was the Latin. And then if you say kasa, Sa is from three Latin words all crunched together like a really grisly car crash. It's ecum, elam, and then elac. Elac is over there. So, ecum, elam, elac, said millions and millions and millions of times over 2,000 years, become sa. S-la. Sa. And so, it all starts out, elac sounds like a laxative, it all starts out with Latin. And then stuff just gets crunched together, so that you finally have Casa and nobody bats an eye. Yes, my Brazilians, I know I'm going to hear from you. It's funny, there're certain groups who listen to this show, and I'm so gratified. Jewish people seem to be especially fond of Lexicon Valley and I love you right back and also Brazilians. I hear from a lot of Brazilians. I don't know why so many people listen to this in Sao Paulo, but they seem to and I know that I cannot talk about se without you Brazilians writing and you should that in your language you have something similar. So, what killed the chicken? O que é que matou a galinha? Well, that means what is what killed the chicken. That is certainly not the way it was in Latin. That's Portuguese keeping things renewed. O que é que matou a galinha? What killed the chicken? And in Portuguese, they take it even further. You can do it with other question words. And so, when did his father die? I'm sorry about these sentences. It's the best I can do. When did his father die? So, his father died. O seu pai, his father, morreu. Moreo, his father died. When did his father die? Quando. Okay. Quando. I don't know which Portuguese I'm speaking, continental or Brazilian, so I'll just pretend with both of them. So, let me, all right, Brazilian, because I hear that more. Quando. Okay. So, when did his father die? And you know from Spanish, quando. But really, quando e que o seu pai Morreu. So, when is what the father does? That is something that Portuguese does. You know, Galinha, on Galinha, COVID horror story for me. And of course, other people have genuine horror stories. But when briefly New York supermarkets were very low on meat, I went to one and I wanted some poultry, and all there were were these weird chickens. They looked as if they had been killed under duress, they had stiff limbs and they were kind of a funny size. And they were marked on the package because I'm in a neighborhood where there are a lot of Spanish speakers. It said gallina. And I thought, well, all right, yeah, chicken. Don't know why they're using that different word. But I figured I'll just get this one. I put that thing into my slow cooker. I cooked it for eight hours and nothing happened. Its legs were still up stiff. It sweated off no juice at all. I was afraid this thing might be alive. It also had an odd smell. What the hell was that gallina? One of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me. I I never want to see a gallina again. That is the, the Iberian romance story. But then there are other things. You never know what a language is going to do to you in terms of questions. Never assume that how to make a question is going to be easy. And so, for example, Maori, the Polynesian language of New Zealand. In many ways, Maori is one of those languages where you think that it, quote unquote, doesn't have any grammar. But oh, no, no. You never know what's going to happen. So, for example, this business of whether you're going to put your question word at the end or at the beginning. Okay, if you want to say, who went home? In Maori, you say, who went home? It feels very English. Who went home? But suppose you're saying, the teacher asked whom? Now, of course, we don't put it that way. We would say, who did the teacher ask? But think about it. Who went home is who as a subject. Who did the home going? Who did the teacher ask is who as an object. Whom did the teacher ask? Well, in Maori, if you say whom did the teacher ask, you do have to have the who after. It goes kind of where it belongs. So, who went home, okay, but the teacher asked who, and you can't say who did the teacher ask. Then with what, what's cooking? Is it a gallina? Well, what is doing the cooking? That's a subject, okay. But if you want to say, what's that woman cleaning? Where it's kind of like a sphincter says what, the woman is cleaning what? Then you do put the what at the beginning, but you have to make it possessive. And so, you say, not what is the woman cleaning, but of what is the woman cleaning? What's the woman cleaning of? And you just have to know when no one's going to tell you, and you're just stuck with it. Maori is cool that way. You never know. And then in English, we use fuck. And what I mean by that is, think about how... Words can take on weird meanings, and this includes profanity. So, like, that's a big-ass squirrel. It's a capybara or something like that since we're in South America. Big-ass squirrel. Well, big-ass squirrel means a counterintuitively large squirrel. I guess that's what a woodchuck is or something like that. But you say big ass. Well, ass begins referring to the gluteal endowment, and now it's this pragmatic marker of the counter-expectational. Who knew? Or a nigga. A nigga is now a pronoun, as we discussed, so this word that meant black to Julius Caesar is now a word used as an affectionately self-deprecatory first-person pronoun by certain people in the United States of America, which did not exist when Julius Caesar was alive, or he would have probably tried to invade it. Well, what about fuck? It's interesting. If somebody says, (laughs) fuck's that, what they mean is, what the fuck is that? We know that it's short for that. But suppose people kept saying fuck's that, and suppose nobody ever wrote English down, And it was just a language that was allowed to do what it did. And then some Martian anthropologist comes down and they're trying to figure out how we do questions. They would say that, you know, a certain gentleman fond of a certain kind of beer is given to saying fucks. No, let me do Marvin the Martian for this. A certain gentleman fond of a certain kind of beer is given to saying fucks that instead of what's that. Fuck is a new interrogative pronoun. That's my closest Marvin Martian. But so fuck's this. And if you kept going in terms of how language actually works, this actually could happen. Fuck would be another question word. And so there could be this future time where somebody might say, fuck is the first day that I can get a haircut again. That's something I'm wondering about because I look like I don't have a home right now. Fuck is the first day that I could get a haircut right now. That actually expresses my feeling better than what or which is the first day that I can get a haircut again. Or, you know, fuck is James Joyce's best novel. It's very possible. You know, somebody ought to write a book about profanity. They ought to call it Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever. That'd be a good title and they ought to have it come out next spring. They ought to have just seen the cover of it and found that it looked quite snappy. The book should come out with Penguin Random House. I would choose that if this were up to me. Hypothetically, somebody ought to write a book called Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever on sale with your friendly bookseller next spring. Just saying that somebody ought to do that. In any case, remember Knocko the Monk? Remember how funny people in the teens thought it was when you know chimpanzees wore clothes in the comic strips? Well, I think that I want our final musical selection to be one more David Yazbek. This is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Again, this is a French guy who is disgusted that the Norbert Leo Butts slob character is being fitted out as a gentleman. He's calling him a chimp. In a suit.
2: Dress up a monkey in Armani. He may seem precocious and cute. Despite all that crimping you still got that chimp in a suit. Teach him the second verse of Swanee and most of Moon River to boot. Sure, people. will. Keep, but you still got an ape in a suit. Spritzing wet with the eau de toilette, and you're still gonna get a snatch. Damping him well in a quart of Chanel, it won't cover the smell. I should know I'm French.
0: One of the cleverest lyrics written for the Broadway stage in the 21st century. I could listen to it forever and I hope that you will enjoy it. And while you're listening, you can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. You know where I'm not? A closet. I'm sitting at my desk and learn some tricks to listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out go to slate.com slash lexicon valley mike wolo is as always the editor and i am john mcwater and
2: bring him to dance he remains a chimpanzee he's not Fred the stare give the dandy little topper tie on a netty cravat a castle, he'd still be an asshole, and nothing you do will change that. He's still just a stinky little minky, and a dinky little sock, and a cheap little head.